Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 5, 1 through 13. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive, uh, olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, we've been going through Nehemiah. It's, it's one of, it's quickly become one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, Nehemiah, we've been going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and it is a story about rebuilding the ruins. Um, chapters one through three kind of break up like this. It's about the task at hand. The fact that God is calling Nehemiah and before him, there was Ezra, there was Zerubbabel, people that God, men and women, God had called up to get busy doing a work of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem from its religious center of the temple to the, the way that society enacted with, interacted with one another to the, the infrastructure of the city walls. God had laid out giving Nehemiah the specific task of rebuilding building this massive wall, and by chapters four, we see there is opposition at hand. In fact, chapters four, five, and six kind of key us into the obstacles that Nehemiah faces as he gives himself to this task. 
And what we saw back in chapter four the last couple weeks is that this opposition came initially from outside of the covenant community, from people who did not worship God, who were not part of God's people, the the Israelites, people who were actually um, critical of the antithesis of, of God's people and God's mission. These people sort of arose and then were critical, trying to stop them on the brink of war, all of that stuff. And by the end of chapter four, we saw Nehemiah speak to his people in a way that that called them up to to rebuild and defend at the same time. Sword in one hand and a trowel in another. And because they have taken this posture, the threat from the enemies subsides for the time being. But just as they get under that that under control, it's as if they're playing oppositional whack-a-mole. They say a new piece of opposition arise in chapter five. Now, this time, it's not an external threat. It doesn't come from outside of God's people. It comes from within the covenant community. Before, the threat was God's people versus the world, and now God's people have sort of turned on themselves. Now, what this chapter shows us is that there there are internal threats that not only do they exist in the church among God's people, these internal threats can oftentimes be the most damaging. It can can be the biggest blow for God's mission and the momentum that he gives his church. If if you want uh, case studies of this, just ask God and Satan when he led his cosmic rebellion against God that led to a third of the angels being cast down. Just David, King David, about the internal opposition that he faced within his own family, that his son Absalom tried to rise up and dethrone David and take for himself God's kingdom. You can ask Jesus about one of his disciples named Judas, and you can ask Paul about his buddy Demas. Internal opposition has existed as long as God's people have existed as well. Now, some things never change. We can see how this phenomenon of internal threats carries throughout church history. And you can see that some of the most successful attacks on the church have oftentimes come from the inside. Now, these internal threats still threaten the church in this day and age. James Montgomery Boyce once commented, the greatest opposition to the mission of God today comes from people within the church. People who want the form of godliness but reject genuine Christianity. And he he notes this can happen in one of two ways. First, there's theological compromise, right? The, The deviation, the departure from the word of God where the wisdom of man trumps God's wisdom as he communicates to his people through his word. Or... Number two is through ungodly conduct. People who take the name of Christ, but do not take the image, the character, the likeness of Christ. It's it's basically uh, a, a, a breaking of the commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain. And sometimes you see one, sometimes you see the other, and a lot of times you see you see both. And what happens when this this internal threat is left to fester and sort of sit there, there's this erosive tendency, a destructive, a splintering effect that happens within the church that not only jeopardizes the mission of God, not only does it stall the mission of God in its tracks, it kills 
unity among God's people. Brother against brother. And when this is unchecked, it's not long before there is zero distinction between the church and the world. Right? The church just acts like the world does. And in this case, this is why the building stops here in chapter five, at least momentarily. Because Nehemiah is thinking, if, if our people, if God people, God's people are going to become just like the world, what's the point in building a wall? See, the wall was made to, to create this barrier of distinctiveness, a physical reminder that we have been, as God's people, set apart by God's grace. These internal threats are very real. They're very pressing. They exist today in the church, and the church does well to keep her eyes alert for these threats, not, not in a way that makes you suspicious of your neighbor, not in a way that makes you look funny at your MC uh, family member across the living room from you, but in a way where you turn the mirror upon yourself and you examine your own heart. Because the threat of the church doesn't just lie out there, it lies within you. It's within your own heart. As Pogo says in his comic strip, Wisdom, we have seen the enemy and he is us. See, the enemy to the church, the enemy to the flourishing of the church could be any one of us. In fact, we all push that temptation. Now today we're gonna see the threat that caused the building to stop momentarily in, in Nehemiah chapter five. And as we explore those threats, what we're gonna see along the way, we'll be able to identify some of the most pressing threats today within the church. The things that we're dealing with, things that are pitfalls, things that are, that, are, that are booby traps that you and I are very susceptible to falling into unless we keep alert. Just as Paul told Timothy back in 1 Timothy, keep, keep your eyes, keep, keep a lookout on your doctrine and your life. Don't, don't be suspicious of people out there. Turn it on yourself. So that as we acknowledge these threats, as we look at the enemy within, we can, by God's grace, shed all that hinders us and run the race that's been set before us to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city, to rebuild the ruins. Or in other words, to advance the kingdom of heaven so it'd be here in the Quad Cities as it is in heaven. All while our eyes are firmly fixed on Jesus. So that's what we're looking at today. You want to grab your Bible. We're going we're gonna to press through here. Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to ask the Lord to speak to us this morning, knowing that his word does not return void. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 5 together. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brothers. So notice that internal strife there. It's, it's an outcry of the people and their wives against their, their kinsmen, their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us, let us get grain so that we can eat and keep alive. And then there were those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it 
for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And what we're seeing here is a great outcry from among the people, and it all revolves around financial instability. There's an economic problem here among the people of God, and when you trace this problem down to its root, it's a hard issue. There's sin here, but as the sin manifests, as you see the consequences of the sin, there are varying degrees of problems going on within God's people. You have three categories of people. Number In verse two, you see people who are just don't have the food at their disposal. They're limited on their resources. So they're very much hand to mouth. They're expecting, they're crying out for some sort of financial, some sort of food provisions so they would not starve to death. Now in verse three, we see another category of people. People who are already experiencing that, but what they're doing is they're mortgaging their fields. They're borrowing against their property. So they're taking the wealth that they have and they're putting it online. So thinking instead of thinking long-term, they're thinking short-term. And they're borrowing against their property in order to eat and it's causing poverty among them. And then you see the next level that that amplifies even more in verse four, where you have people that have exhausted the borrowing, the lending against their property. And now they're resorting to um, basically selling their children into slavery so that they could have, their kid would have a, a future, that they wouldn't expire, that they wouldn't perish, but then the family would benefit as well. See, you see this this poverty sort of uh, escalating here among God's people. And we, I wish I had more time to talk about this, but, but it's very important for us um, as we come to passages in Scripture that speak of slavery that we need to shed our, our, our 21st century um, modern Western worldview. So this kind of slavery is not the way, the, the kind of slavery that we had early on in our nation's history, but a different kind. It's more of like an, an indentured servitude is, is what it was. It's sort of a, well, I, I don't want to go into it, but it's not the same thing. But they they saw this as a means to make financial provisions for their family in dire circumstances. You might be wondering, what caused these extreme circumstances? What what caused these people to frantically lend, like borrow against their property, give away their children into slavery? What what was this? What's the problem here? Well, really, it's it's multi-layered. There's a lot of layers to the circumstances, the problems that we're seeing here. But but at the foundation of this, what sets the stage for this this issue is the fact that God had called his people to rebuild the ruins. This this building project that Nehemiah has been assigned to and that God had had raised up the people to to do has caused an economic disruption. Just think of that. If if you were to just take a a good number of the workforce out of the Quad City and say, hey, we're going to start building a temple here. We're going to start building a sanctuary. It's going to disrupt some of the, the, uh, the economic activity that we have going on in the Quad Cities. Same thing happened in Jerusalem. Except what we see is not this reluctant, this hesitancy in going of sort of leaving behind uh, the, the individual comfort, the individual financial stability. There, there's this joyfulness in going to give themselves to the mission of God. They gladly left their businesses to rebuild. And so what we see is the supply chain is, is disrupted. The economy is disrupted for the sake of God's mission. Now, what that shows us, and it's helpful to, to be reminded of, is that when you prioritize the mission of God, 
it rarely is financially advantageous to do so. Prioritizing the mission of God is going to require sacrifice. See, and here's what drives us though, it's, it's a great vision. The thing that compels us to sacrificial living and giving is not this, this forceful white knuckle, this is what I need to do, but you've been captivated by Jesus' vision, his mission to renew earth so it would be like heaven. And when you see what the Lord is wanting to do and how he's wanting to do it through you and your resources, you are more inclined to open yourself up to giving your time, your talent, and treasure to advance said mission. This is one of the markers of, of genuine Christianity. Among genuine Christians is a heart of generosity because we know that in Christ we have already gained far more than we deserve, both in this life and the one to come. Ephesians opens, all, all blessings have been given to you through Christ. Now, that may or may not be financial, but there are, there's a boatload of blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. But even with that, we're told that there is a, an inheritance that we receive. Like we, we get to inherit with all of the saints the glory of the kingdom of heaven, that which we were never by our own means able to enter into, but Jesus gave us the ability to access by the shedding of his own blood. So Christians are, are marked by generosity, sacrificial, joyful generosity. And it's not just the leaders. Now we get to see how leaders set the pace. In fact, in the next section of chapter five, we'll see how Nehemiah does this. He, he sets the tone as a leader among God's people. But it's not just the leaders that are called to this sacrificial, generous giving, this, this giving of themselves, of their time, their talent, their treasure. This is meant to be all Christians. All Christians are called to sacrificially invest in the kingdom of heaven. Now we see a great example of this as this rebuilding project happens, right? As Nehemiah calls people to rebuild, we see resources, time, talent, all of it, and even lack of talent in some cases, just dumped into the mission of God. You go back to, to chapters two, chapter three, you see this very thing playing out, that the generosity, the spirit of giving and contributing to the mission shared among all people. You see it very much here in, in Jerusalem. Yet in the church, oftentimes we don't share that same spirit of generosity. This is, this is one of the pitfalls, one of the things that we need to be on guard of as Christians is that we have a sinful tendency. When God calls us to, to give our time, to, to point our time, talent, and treasure towards his mission, we, we don't have a generous heart. Instead, we, we are stingy and stagnant toward the mission of God and his church. And you see this play out. There's a saying among churches that it's the 80-20% rule. You got 20% of people doing 80% of the work. Right? That might be true in other aspects of life as well, but, but it's, it's very much one of those things where you're looking at a church, oftentimes 20% of people doing 80% of the work. 
Now, praise to and honor to those 20% of the people that love to serve. They do so with a glad and joyful heart. But those who love to be served without ever stepping up or stooping down, rather, to serve themselves, there's a problem there. You see stagnancy in their heart. They're, They're eager to be served, but never quick to serve. You can see this also in in stinginess, a spirit of stinginess in the church where there's just a lack of generosity. There are Christians who have received every spiritual blessing that God, the promise of Jehovah Jireh, our provider, yet when it comes to my bank account, it's mine. My my hands are gripped tight around those things. And what happens is that that I lack charity. So when I see a need among the people around me, I'm slow. I'm too concerned about my own self, my own comfort and financial security that I don't give to those who are in need. I don't don't contribute to the the widows and the orphans and those who are impoverished as the, the word of God commands us to. And even worse, we rob God of our tithes and our offerings. Gary DeMar, uh, I've been reading a book by uh, Gary DeMar over the last year um, about God and government. It's been one of the most helpful books for me. Um, And one of the things that he identifies in this book is how quickly we have as as Westerners, and this has been the case through almost every, every society, we've been so quick to rely upon the government um, we've been so, so inclined towards giving a, a large amount of our hard-earned money to the government to pay our taxes that has created a, a stinginess within the church. Uncle Sam here is asking you for 30, 35%. And the Lord who gave you everything is, is saying 10%. That's the start of generosity. And because Christians are often wrapped up in stinginess, the mission of God is stunted because we don't have the resources to do what God's called us to do. Now, I believe if our church, if every member of our church were to stand up and say, what's mine is from God, and here's how I honor the Lord. Here's what a tithe looks like. We would be able to do great things in our city. We would be able to see, so when, when I stand up here and receive the honor from Pastor Appreciation Sunday, I'm grateful for, but there would be more men, there would be more servants, more ministers in the church that are carrying the word that we can compensate them for the work that's be do, being done to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But in a lot of ways, we get bottlenecked. Our vision outpaces the resources, not because God hasn't given them, but because we've held on to them too tight. Now, when we see stagnancy and stinginess in the church, it exposes an underlying heart issue, one that can tank a church. Because what Jesus tells us when when he's speaking on the topic of generosity, of giving, is that our time, our talent, our treasure flows to where your heart is. So where your heart is, there your treasure is going to go to as well. Now, what that either means is that our hearts are attached to a a smaller thing, a smaller vision than the renewal of the heavens and the earth. Or we just don't believe that our resources can make an impact in the kingdom of heaven. But church, let me tell you, every dollar, every dime 
that is given in the name of Jesus is multiplied in the hands of Christ to blow massive holes in the gates of hell. So if you value the kingdom of heaven, if you value the work that Jesus is doing, let me ask you, is your time, your talent, your treasure flowing to those things? Or in other words, is it flowing to the kingdom of heaven or are those things, time, talent, treasure, flowing to your own kingdom? See, and that's where the real conflict, the first piece of conflict, is it God's kingdom I'm about or is it my kingdom that I'm about? Now, that's a pitfall for the church today, but this, this is not specifically an issue in Nehemiah chapter five. You can see how it could be an issue, but it's not. But in our church, in the church, it is an issue. Stagnancy, stinginess is an issue. But undergirding the stagnancy and stinginess is envy. See, the great destroyer here of generosity is envy. Envy is entitled. Envy says, I deserve this or I deserve what that person has. It always wants more that is had. It's never content. It's always just sort of like trying to get more and more and more. And it's so self-preoccupied that it can't see past itself. And when this happens in the church, it creates self-obsessed people who not only destroy or damper the mission of God, it's people who destroy relationships. See, this, this works out into the relational sector. Stagnancy and stinginess carries relational consequences. But what we see here in Nehemiah chapter five is it only takes a small minority of God's people in this place of envy, in this place of greed to undermine the work that God has called his people to do. And that's what we see happening here. In Nehemiah chapter five, we're told that there are, are nobles and officials who have seen this, this as an, an economic opportunity for them to, to advance their own prosperity at the cost of their fellow kinsmen. While the vast majority of people are giving their time and talent and treasure to the work that's before them, people are taking advantage of them and in this, sabotage is taking place. Envy is sabotaging God's people. And instead of caring for the people who are laying it all on the line, these nobles, the officials, are destroying them and only thinking about themselves. Now, here are the other layers that are at play. So as God has called his people, that economic disruption of rebuilding the ruins, the supply chain is disrupted, but then you see how this kind of domino effects here. You, you see um, the supply, in, uh, supply is down, demand is up, right? Basic economics. And, and that's another thing that we probably don't realize is the Bible doesn't just speak to us about salvation. It doesn't tell us about how to get from, from our fallen state to, to heaven someday. It doesn't just tell us this giant overarching story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And it does tell us all of those things, but the Bible speaks to every facet of our life. Somebody once said, I'm trying to, Van Til maybe, said that um, in everything the scripture speaks to, it is authoritative. And the scriptures speak to everything. Now, this includes economics. You probably don't realize this. Now, that doesn't mean the Bible is an economic textbook. But God tells his people, he teaches his people how to live wisely economically. So economics is at play here. The supply is down, demand is up, the cost increase. You see a bit of inflation 
Because of this, people's budgets are tight. You see famines start to creep in. Food supply is down. And as people are trying to secure food, they're borrowing money against their land, against their livelihood. They're going to more wealthy people who got the coin and say, hey, I'll make a deal with you. But the problem with this is actually, so God, there are circumstances where God says, this is a good thing to do. And here's how you do that. But in this situation, the lenders are doing something sinful. Your Bible calls it exacting interests. They're exacting interest. This is where the interest rate that is being issued here is so high, astronomically high, that it becomes a mechanism of poverty. And that's exactly what you see. You see those three tiers of people who are experiencing different blows of poverty. And so we see steep, unjust rates. These are ungodly interest rates. And on top of that, so you got famine, you got these interest rates, and then there's also a hefty tax that's being opposed upon, imposed upon the people. So you've got all of these things. You've got the, the disruption in the supply chain, you've got a famine, you've got this tax, and then you've got people that are taking advantage of one another. And what we have here is a lesson in predatory economics, where the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and this is, biblically speaking, a massive injustice. We know this is an injustice, not by our own standards that we create, not by man's standards, but by the word of God. The Bible speaks to economics. Now, in this scenario, what, what this would look like if you were to obey God's word is, is they would issue to the lender or the lender would issue the, these charity loans. So, so the Bible differentiates between a loan for charity and a loan for business. Now this, given the circumstances, would fall under, under the category of a, a charity loan. Now a charity loan would be between brothers and sisters, bro, between the Jews. So this is how God's people deal with one another uh, on, on non-business related terms. There would be interest-free loans that would take place. This is based upon what we're told in, in Exodus chapter 22, verse 25. It gets repeated again in Numbers. And the, the borrower would have seven years to pay off this interest-free loan that's on the basis of charity. But at the end of that seventh year, if they had not paid back all of, of what was taken out, all that was borrowed, that debt would be canceled. Now, this may not seem fair, because then on one hand, you've got a lender who's well off and, and he's being charitable to his kinsmen. And at the end, he doesn't get paid back. Well, the idea behind this is, is what Jesus tells us of, of laying up our treasures in heaven. They, they may never see that money back on this side of eternity, but God blesses his people as we lay up treasures in heaven. So they're operating under the standing that God would be the one repaying them if that debt didn't get paid back. But that's not what we see them doing in Nehemiah chapter five, they're using unjust, ungodly economics and it's hurting the covenant community. Now, this is another pitfall, another potential pitfall within the church that as we live life together, as, as Christians, you know, and I think it's good, it's good for Christians to build businesses, to build enterprise, 
to do business with one another, to have the exchange of goods and services, but to do so in a way that is biblically rooted, that's done justly and with honor towards one another. But there's a temptation that as Christians do business with other Christians that we start acting like the world. We don't, we don't pay fair wages. We don't give an honest bid. And I think most often what you see is when Christians deal with Christians, there, there's an expectation of handouts. Right? Oh, yeah, we go to church together, so he's going to give me a steep discount. When, when really what we should be doing is, is saying, oh, this is the way that he provides for, or she provides for their family. We ought to bless them in that. And so you see this sort of unfair, this unjust uh, circulation of goods and services within the church. And when this happens, you use unjust scales, you use unfair measurements. This causes both economic and relational disruption. You see, every time there's something going on there, it's not just the thing, it's there's relationships at stake as well. So as Christians, one of the ways that we differentiate ourselves from the world is that we do business justly. We, we honor those who do good and honest work. Now, this was the case in Nehemiah where there was injustice, economic injustice, and it got Nehemiah all hot and bothered. We see this in verse six. It says, I was very angry. Not just angry, not a little upset. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Why, why was Nehemiah angry? Because there is a legitimate injustice among God's people. And what we see here with Nehemiah is, is he, he does what we're told to do in Ephesians 4. He's angry, but he's angry without sinning. See, anger is a gift from God. It's something that we feel. It's a perception that we have when we see an injustice that tells us something's wrong. Something's broken. And that's one of the reasons why God says, be angry, see the injustice for what it is, but don't retaliate. Don't, don't go back and swing the, the same kind of blows they're throwing at you, but do not sin. And, and we see this with Nehemiah. He goes and he says he takes account with himself. Uh, I took counsel with myself. He goes, he subdues the, the raw emotion, figures out what his next step is. And, and what we see is Nehemiah operates very much in the spirit of Matthew 18. This is a passage of, of going to your brother when he sins against you, how you deal with conflict within the church, within the body of Christ. It goes like, if your brother sins against you, go to him. If he, if he, if he repents, you won your brother over. If you, that didn't work, go to him with one or two or three, a smaller group. That doesn't work, go take him before the church, right? We see this, this pattern of escalation within Matthew 18 of how Christians are to deal with internal conflict. And Nehemiah gives us a spirit, the spirit of that, because first he goes to speak to the offenders, to speak to the unjust lenders in verses seven. He says, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest from his brother. Well, based upon the next sentence that flows, it didn't work. They, they weren't convinced. See, that it's easy for injustice to continue on if it is blind to the injustice, to the effect that it's having on the people who are being wounded or hurt by it. 
Well, Nehemiah realizes this as they stay unswayed by this poignant, um, well, what he calls it, an assertion or a charge against these nobles and rulers. And so what he does next is he calls an assembly. He calls all the people who are working to come and gather so he can publicly bring charges against the nobles and officials. What we see in verse, uh, second part of verse seven into verse eight. And I held a great assembly against them, and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought, bought, uh, bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So Nehemiah is, is building upon this argument, these charges. Hey, you're exacting interest. You're, you're dealing with your brother unjustly. And this is now, he's saying, this is the product of it. You're, you're acting so corruptly that their hand is being forced to enlist their own children in some kind of slavery. As verse Eight goes on, they were silent and could not find a word to say. Now they're silent because their guilt, their shame was before them. Their sin had been found out. And they didn't try to deny it. The facts were there, black and white, right? They, they could look in the faces of the people that they were hurting the most. They could see the pain. They could see the poverty, the heartache that they were causing. And they didn't try to justify it. They didn't make excuses for it. They were silent. And what we're seeing here in this moment is this realization that the nobles and the officials, officials they are the true debtors here. That They are the ones who are sinning against. So, so the, the financial debtors were the ones who were borrowing money. They're the spiritual debtors. Right? They're, they're debtors of sin, that they had sinned against their brother, and now they st stand in debt before God and before their brothers. Now, what we see here is honestly one of the most encouraging interactions that you can see as somebody's con convicted of their sin, as somebody's sin is brought before them. No excuses being made. And then what we see follow is really powerful, a testimony of, of God speaking, convicting his people. Now, I wonder... I wonder it would be, what it would be like as a church, as Christians, if, if we had the same kind of sensitivity to the Holy Spirit when we are convicted of sin. See, the, the Holy Spirit is a great gift. Jesus says, I, I'm going so I can send somebody better. The Holy Spirit comes to us, fills up the heart of, of Christians, but one of the things, the Spirit does two things, two big things, is to comfort us and convict us of sin. But, but in order to comfort us, we have to be convicted of our sin. We have to see our sin for what it is, to turn from it, to eject it from our lives. And then we get to experience the comfort of the Spirit, the comfort of God's forgiveness. But too often, when we're confronted, when we find conviction or, or feel that pinch that God brings, what we tend to do, instead of being silent and hearing the charges, acknowledging that they are true, what we try to do is build up a, a self-defense. We try to justify ourselves, point the finger. What? Not my problem, it's their problem. He did that, she did that. And what we're doing in those moments is we are sidestepping guilt and shame. 
Now, if you're in the modern secular era and you're listening to what these you know, secular robots are talking about. Here's how you live in the world. He's like, well, you gotta just eject guilt and shame. Pretend like it doesn't even exist, right? That, that's actually, it is, uh, it is subhuman, they would insist, that it's subhuman to be affected by either guilt or shame. You need to be bold in yourself. You need to feel good in your own skin. But what they don't realize is that guilt and shame are God-given gifts. It's part of his kindness towards us that when God pricks us with conviction, it is God's kindness, the beginning of his kindness that brings us back to him, that helps us turn away from our sin and actually find a solution to the guilt and shame. Not like we tuck it away underneath the rug or put it back in a closet somewhere where we pretend like it doesn't exist when it very much still does exist. No matter how hard you try to meditate, no matter what kind of mantras you have, it's still there. But God's kindness to us is that there's an actual solution in the person and work of Jesus Christ that our sin and our shame could be pulled out of us and placed upon him. And the great danger is when you ignore guilt and shame as God uses them to bring us closer to him, if you ignore those realities, your heart will become calloused. And the more calloused your heart gets, the less likely it is for you to become convicted of your sin. And the less likely you are to be convicted of your sin, the less likely you are to repent of your sin, and the less likely you are to experience the the washing of God's new mercies every day. What we see in the, the silence of the offenders is a sensitivity of heart. And we see this as it gets laid out here as we're closing this passage Nehemiah said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the, the, the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Now, he, he's tapping into their, that's shame, that's guilt, right? People are gonna look at us and ridicule us for the way that we treat one another. Moreover, I and my brothers and servants are lending them money and grain. So Nehemiah sees that he, though he's not taking a huge advantage like the nobles and the officials are, he too is complicit to some degree. And so he says, not let, you better not, but he says, let us. He's among the people. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them or stealing from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And Nehemiah called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised, I shook the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise, so, he may, so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord, and the people did as they promised. Now, as I close here, there are three things that I want to show you. It shows us, first of all, I mean, this is under the umbrella there are important things that we need to see that allow us to resume life together on mission. When sin happens, when there's relational conflict, when there's economic disruption, when there's a disproportionate labor among who's giving, who's serving, 
Three things are important for us to see in order to resume life together on mission. Number one is repentance. Number two is covenant renewal. Number three is reconciled fellowship. Let me bust through these here real quick. Number one, repentance. When we see Nehemiah telling them what to do in verse 11, right, giving back the money, giving back the stuff that that people were borrowing against, what, what he's doing, he's not punishing them. It's not a a form of punishment for doing this, for for breaking God's commands. He's showing them what repentance looks like. They're returning that which was unjustly gained, the money, the land. Then we see another scenario like this where Jesus meets Zacchaeus, right? The wee little man. Zacchaeus is convicted of his sin. He's taking money from people. He's, He's unjustly robbing people of tax money. And Zacchaeus meets Jesus and his heart has changed. And he goes back and he pays back every, everything, every penny that he stole before and then some. See, that's what it looks like when you've encountered Jesus, the kind of forgiveness that he offers. Just as, as Zacchaeus experienced this, you see like this, this, this returning of money here in Nehemiah 5. Now, I need to be sure that you know this is not Socialism. That's not at all what's going on here. This is not a a redistribution of of goods so everybody's equal among them. There there very much is a a distinction of what belongs to who based on what they had earlier. What we're seeing here is genuine repentance. And repentance generally happens in kind and proportion to the sin that is committed. Exactly what happened. They, they stole X amount of dollars, they return X amount of dollars. Same thing with Zacchaeus. Now, you can work this out. So if, if you sin publicly, your repentance probably should be public, right? You, you do something in front of a missional community, well, you should probably repent to your missional community, not just saying before God. Now, ultimately, your sin is before God against you and you alone, him and him alone have you sinned, but it's also a relational thing. There's relational strain. So there needs to be a repentance that is generally in kind and proportion to the sin that is committed. And we see this here. They restore social and economic order and they do so according to the word of God. Now next we see covenant renewal taking place. As the nobles and officials repent of their sin, they, co- they consent to uh, the, 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 the judgment that Nehemiah lays out. They give back. They say, we will do this. They keep their promise. Nehemiah brings in the priests to come and renew a covenant, saying, hey, we are going to operate according to the word of God. And then with that, he pronounces a curse. He shakes his garment, says, listen, I'm shaking out whatever dust, whatever I got, so, so that if, nobody, if, if anybody fails to do what we vowed to do here today, may God do that to you. May God shake you out. Right? There, there's a curse pronounced that, that if you don't Live into the covenant. If you don't order your life as God commands in his word, there is a curse that will follow. Now, what we see here is all the people consent, but both those who are impoverished and those who are lending out money, and we see a hearty amen from the people. And the word amen means let it be so. It's an agreement of affirmation. Let it be so. And so they make, renew their covenant, and they set out, and they actually execute. They actually do what they say they're gonna do. But then what we see next is reconciled worship. What we see here, the very end here, as all of the assembly says, amen, they praise the Lord. A 
offender and victim together, sitting in the same pew, praising the Lord. Now, what this shows us is that there has been legitimate forgiveness. There's, there's not a harboring of bitterness. There's not this sort of manipulative, well, I'll forgive you if you do this, or you, sh- you prove to me that you re-. There's none of that nonsense that happens. It's a legitimate forgiveness. The financial debts have been forgiven, but even more so, the spiritual and relational debt has been forgiven too. And now we get to see this forgiveness and reconciliation being worked out in the covenant community, and the first shape that it takes is worshiping the Lord together. To live life together in community and on mission means that you will rub shoulders with other sinners. You're a sinner, they're a sinner, problems are gonna happen. Just set your expectations on that, right? And anytime it doesn't happen, praise the Lord for his grace. But when you rub shoulders with sinners, you will be sinned against and you will sin against them also. Just unfortunately how it is as we live underneath the curse of sin. And the Apostle Paul warns us in Galatians chapter five that as we live together in community and on mission, we need to be careful to not bite and devour one another, right? This, this little nitpicky sin where little sins accumulate and before long we've, we've ensnared someone in some sort of spiritual bondage that we can't forgive them, that we can't even look them in the eye, that we, we have this heart that is hard toward them, callous toward them, and that's disruptive of the culture, the family of God. And if that goes, as biting and devouring carries on, what happens is the church will be destroyed, ruins the relational integrity of God's people. See, this is one of the biggest threats to the church. It's not out there, the world coming to get us. It's an in here. My heart is wicked. Your heart is wicked. It's warped. And we're in warfare to, to one another. And this, if unchecked, will split the church, it'll split a missional community, it'll stall the mission of God. It is a massive threat, the threat of unforgiveness. But thank God that he has given us the anti-venom of unforgiveness. God has given us the full forgiveness of our Lord and Jesus Christ, who seen our sin for what it is. He did not count our sin against us, but he took our sin upon himself. Our debts piled up on him. And he paid them, paid the debt for it. He paid the price, nailing it to the cross. Now, the way that you know that you've experienced this radical forgiveness of Jesus is that you then become a forgiver. Out of your forgiveness in Christ, you then forgive others. And this is what sets the world apart or the church apart from the world. This is why in the church there should not be cancel culture. This is why in the church that that though we might be nicked and bruised by by these conflicts in, in church life together, our hearts are united in Christ and together we can experience reconciliation. Now Jesus not only says, hey, this would be nice if it works out this way, he commands us to forgive others as we've been forgiven. In Matthew 18, this is just after Jesus talks about um, if your brother sins against you, he goes into the parable of the unforgiving servant, the, the servant who is forgiven of a massive debt, and then after he's forgiven of a massive debt, he's got all these tiny little debts that he wants to settle with other, other fellows. 
And he, in his hardness of heart, can't forgive them. Well, Jesus says this. The master then revokes his forgiveness to that servant based on his unforgiving heart. The master revokes the forgiveness. And then Jesus says, in anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. And Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The only way that you can forgive a brother from the heart is if you understand the caliber of the forgiveness that you have in Christ. The the only way you can do that is if you live in fear of the Lord your God who did not withhold himself from you but laid his life down. See, when you see this God who puts on flesh, who puts on flesh so he could be crucified for your sin, he goes to such great lengths to forgive you. Out of that, our hearts open up to forgiveness towards our brother. And in the waters of forgiveness, the church can live as she is called to live. Now, it's on us as a church to be on guard from the enemy within. We have to keep our eyes peeled, but not in a way that makes us suspicious of one another, but in a way where we keep a close watch on our own heart for these temptations, these threats that creep in and can take root and upset the ecosystem of of grace that God creates here. Like Paul tells Timothy, keep a close watch on your doctrine and your life. Let us do so so the church can run with perseverance, give ourselves to the work that God has laid before us, not shoot ourselves in the foot and see the church do great things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. We don't, we have done nothing to deserve it. We we didn't even make ourselves deserving of forgiveness. It's while we were dead in our sins and trespasses that you moved toward us, that you paid the price that we cannot afford. And this meal reminds us just how severe, how how large our debts were that it required your body broken, your blood shed. But it's by your wounds, your people are healed. Father, help us restore our hearts. Help us to walk in step with the spirit, not with the flesh, that we would forgive one another as we have been forgiven, that we would deal with one another justly as you have dealt justly with us first in the cross. And then there will be a judgment to come. And help us, Lord, to set our hand to the plow, to give our time, our talent, our treasure for the sake of that which we love most, the the kingdom of heaven, that we would seek first the kingdom of heaven and all of its righteousness and that would be added to us. For your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 